Thanks so much for joining Amberly, Nice, and I for Inspiring Growth, where we're sharing stories of struggle that have led to amazing growth. Today, we're going to share just one story. I want to see how far into the story you will figure out who this is about. Amberly, thank you for putting this story together. Absolutely. It was, uh, it was a joy to do. Obviously, uh, when we dive into who it is, uh, it's a story that I think all of us think we know. And yet when I did my research, there was a whole bunch about this that I thought, oh, this is gold. And so I'm so excited that we get to share it with our listeners today. So before we jump into the story, I just want to remind you that after the story, we're going to spend a couple of minutes just sort of pulling out the nuggets of wisdom that we learned uh, for running a business, starting a business, changing careers. So are you guys ready? Let's jump in. Park Place, Boardwalk, Marvin Gardens. Did you ever play Monopoly as a kid and dream that the fake bills in your hand were actually real? Did you ever place a house or apartment on a property and dream of living in that structure someday? Many in the early 1970s did just that. The 1970s were ushered in with a recession, and it plagued the mines and bank accounts of the American worker. In an attempt to punish any and all countries who supported Israel, OPEC put the squeeze on the world markets, thus creating gas shortages and lines that wrapped around buildings. Most offices in America buzzed with the tapping of typewriter keys, the sounds of Simon and Garfunkel, and the stench of cigarette smoke. The U.S. entered a 16-month recession when the gross domestic product was dealt a devastating blow, the worst decline in nearly two decades. In response, the Federal Reserve edited financial policies, which in turn raised rates, and the Nixon administration moved to curb government spending. This recession, albeit mild in comparison to others in our nation's history, caused unemployment to climb, and one in 16 were without work. Sound kind of familiar? The times were challenging, but they proved fertile ground for new ideas for two childhood friends in particular. They had access to a computer in the late 60s, due in part to the faculty of their school pooling their money to buy it, and the two students spent innumerable hours tinkering and learning to dissect that computer. One summer during high school, one of the boys worked for a company that measured traffic flow patterns by counting the car wheels that rolled over pressure-sensitive rubber tubes. Every 15 minutes or so, a machine would punch a pattern of holes into a piece of paper tape. This tape would be read, and its results were written down manually. The process was monotonous, inefficient, and murder on the eyes. The friends believed this could be done more efficiently and more inexpensively, an idea that soon evolved into the friends' first-ever business, Trafo Data. At the time, the friends were 17 and 19 years old. Let's just pause for a minute so I can introduce you to a really very inspiring man who's known struggle himself as well as, well, a near-death experience. His story is one of seeing needs and meeting them, and his name is Brian Tome. Sound familiar, Inspiring Growth listeners? Yep. Brian was the guest on the Inspiring Growth podcast where he shared his story of jumping off a river gorge 900 feet when his parachute malfunctioned, and he tells that story on one of our previous podcasts. You might want to go back and listen to that. Well, Brian has a fascinating company that helps people in distress. 
It's called Red Truck Investments, and I just love what they do. It's it's named after a 1951 GMC farm truck that Brian bought and restored to new life, kind of like what he does with Red Truck Investments. He buys houses, often houses that are a little run down and need a little TLC, sometimes homes that are in distress. And then he and his team breathe new life into that home, after which they either sell the new beauty or they rent it. One of Brian's clients, the family of an elderly widow who had to go into a nursing home, had a long-time family home that they didn't want anymore, so they called Red Truck Investments. Not only did Brian and Red Truck buy the house quickly at a fair price, but after it was beautifully renovated, Red Truck leased it to this grateful healthcare worker who now calls her home a sanctuary. Hey, listen, if you have a house you need to sell quickly, Start a conversation with Brian Tome on his cell phone at 302-383-8136 or go to redtruckinvestments.com. That's 302-383-8136 or redtruckinvestments.com. Helping distressed homeowners sell their home quickly at a fair price. Now, let's jump back in. Eventually, a third partner joined the company and built a machine to automate the reading of the tapes. They later scraped together $360, or about $2,300 in today's market, to buy a specially ordered microprocessor chip for what became the Trafodata machine. The company ran for years, continuing after the two had left high school. They reportedly netted nearly $20,000 for their work with Trafodata, but the data gathering project ultimately flopped. Both admit such failure was essential in preparing them to make the next products for their next company a few years later. And then they watched as two major companies in their field went bankrupt, and anxiety began to creep into the thoughts of the younger of the men. As an avid Monopoly player in childhood, he knew quite well the risk of entrepreneurship, but this time it was real money, his money. But they persisted and created an infant company by starting a new operating system idea, a truly novel concept for its time. They used the operating system from another company, bought the licensing rights, built upon it, and in 1981, they went on to license the operating system to IBM for its first personal computer. After the partnership with IBM, other computer companies started licensing it. In 1985, over 10 years after they began their journeys, their company released a new operating system. You guessed it, Windows. In 1986, the company went public at $21 a share, raising $61 million. They continued to toil at their ventures, and in 1987, the year after their company went public, the Harvard dropout Bill Gates became the world's youngest billionaire at 31 years old. He and Paul Allen founded what we know today as Microsoft in the midst of a recession. In an email to Microsoft employees on the company's 40th anniversary, Gates wrote, Paul Allen and I set the goal of a computer on every desk and in every home. It was a bold idea, and a lot of people thought we were out of our minds to imagine it was possible. Recent estimates suggest there are over a billion computers running Windows software today. Both Bill Gates and his business partner left an indelible mark in American history, but some of the most profound quotes on leadership and success come from Gates. Quote, success is a lousy teacher. It seduces smart people into thinking they can't lose. Or how about this one? It's fine to celebrate success, but it's more important to heed the lessons of failure. 
Another one of my favorites, as we look ahead into the next century, leaders will be those who empower others. Or finally, your most unhappy customers are your greatest source of learning. These are hard-earned wise words from a man who did not count on chance or get out of jail free cards to make his dreams become reality. Woo! All right, so really, folks, how far into the story did you know who it was? Go to our Inspiring Growth Podcast Facebook page and tell us how far into the story you actually knew who it was. And how many of you played Monopoly? How many of you had the patience to play Monopoly? How many of you actually played Monopoly by the rules and didn't make them up? What what about you, Emily? Oh my gosh. I had uh, my little sister, Allison, who is now wildly successful trader on the stock market. I absolutely would steal her money when she wasn't watching. I'd ask her to go get a swatter and I would, I would steal her, steal her money. And so I consistently won Monopoly. I, I cleaned her clock pretty consistently because I was, uh, yeah, it was great. Isn't that, cheater, yeah. Cheater. <laughs> it's now, true. Wait, it was the only way trading, I could win. <laughs> she's trading on Wall Street right now? She is. She works for a firm outside of Houston and is wildly successful. She's really fantastic. And nobody's stealing her money anymore. She oh, is. <laughs> that's what I wanted to know. Well, there's, yep. a personal, there's a personal story behind this whole computer stuff. Tell us a little bit about what happened when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. So I was born. I, a woman never reveals her age. But here it goes. I was born in December of 1969, and my dad was in intelligence for the Air Force and had gone on a tour of Washington, D.C. just a few years before I was born. And my mom kept a letter from him where he was explaining a computer and that this computer that that was able to process all this information, it took up a whole room. And he was just, he just went on and on all this meticulous detail about this incredible computer. And he said, sweetheart, someday they're hoping to have 10 of these in the United Mm -hmm. States. I mean, there's no way we could have, you know, he could have foreseen, no, no, I have 10 in my house right now. Like I have a phone and a watch and a, and a laptop and a computer and a television that's way smarter, uh, than we could have even fathomed at that time. And so, um, I love this story cause it's kind of that grassroots of people who saw the potential, the possibility. Um, and, oh, that was so good. I just thought that was fantastic. Is it true there's a photo of this, this, this moment? Of my dad? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. If you actually, if you look at the beginning of, oh goodness, Tom Hanks movie and Dan Hanley was the editor, uh, Apollo 13. Yeah. In Apollo 13, it's a very similar thing where they're walking around. So yes, it was my dad in this room surrounded Mm. by this single computer. And Mm. again, now if you buy a bucket of chicken, you get a watch that's probably smarter than that computer was (laughs) in 19, whatever, 60 something. But, uh, just so great that um, that these gentlemen took that those burgeoning ideas and made them into something truly uh, beyond what we could have imagined. And I, and I remember the oil crisis and the lines and and you know there was just a lot of of, of negativity, a lot of woe is me, a lot of. Uh, I remember one of my uh, favorite artists at the time back in the early '80s was Larry Norman, and he wrote a song about stuff that was going on in, in the world at that time. I, I, I just think it's, I, I just want to say, Inspiring Growers, this is our opportunity. This COVID crisis is our opportunity 
to come out the other side stronger and better and making our world a better place. Um, it, it can happen. Don't, don't look at this as something that's going to destroy you. But also from this story, and I don't mean to jump the gun, but from this story, we learn, um, yes, it, something like this, a recession can be a glorious fertile ground for something to grow. However, notice they didn't go unscathed. They had a business that failed. And yet both have said it was critical. Those early mistakes were critical entrepreneurially as well as creatively. Those mistakes were uh, critical to, to create the next thing. And so if you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, this is, this is so, this is so huge and so overwhelming and there's no way that good could come out of this. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Uh, there, there's a lot of good that can come out of this, out of this fertile ground. And I thought, I thought the quotes at the end that you brought up about failure were, were instructive. Um, I, I like to say that when, when, when something doesn't go as planned, something doesn't go to budget, doesn't go to goal, to perform an autopsy without judgment. Mm. To, to look at the failure and say, you know, don't point fingers, you know, it's your fault, Emily, or it's your fault, whoever. Um, instead, don't ask, you know, why did you that, that, that. Say, hey, what went wrong in the system, in the assumption? And so an autopsy, there's, there's a dead thing on the table, this failed whatever. Uh, so let's open it up and figure it out so that we can learn from it. And in the case of Bill Gates and Paul Allen, they learn from it. Absolutely. Now, my question to you is, as somebody who inspires leaders, how do you help somebody when when they say, oh, I have this failure and I need to do this autopsy? How how do you help them disconnect their, their um, buy-in to this company and to this mistake from, like, how do you separate uh, shame, I guess, from, you know, um, what you can learn from it? Yeah. How do, how do you coach that? Well, it, for me, it starts with questions. So if we're, if, if we can, if I can give a leader a, a couple of three, two or three good questions that aren't a blame, shame starting point, like, why the hell did you do that? Like, there is no one's going to win if, if a leader starts with that question. So the second thing is believe the best. Mm. Like, don't start with, oh, you wanted to make this thing fail anyway. You, you, you ascribe a negative or sinister motive. I just have found in my life when I believe the best in people, the best comes out. So you're positively assuming, you're making positive assumptions, generous assumptions about their motives. So yeah. that, okay, that, that makes sense. That's good. However, in all autopsies, there is a cause of death. And oh, you yes. got to get to the cause of death. Mm-hmm. In the case of their first failure, uh, Bill and Paul, as if I'm friends with them, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, they said, here are our assumptions that were wrong. Mm, right. And as a result of those things, they were youthful and they didn't have a lot of experience, but that was the cause of death. Mm. And it was, it was a system. It was a, a, a inexperience. And then you go, Hey leader, you just got a, a, an MBA in this particular kind of business. Let's go with it. I, I remember when I was invited to promote the Paramount picture, same kind of different as me. People have asked me, you know, what did you learn? man, I got a PhD in entertainment marketing. And I mean, piled higher and deeper PhD because (laughs) I was constantly asking questions and uh, 
challenging assumptions because I wasn't really on the inside of that industry at the time. Um, and, you know, afterwards, we, we did an autopsy without judgment because that movie did not even make the investor money back, even though it changed thousands of lives, raised $4 million to help. It's a homeless. great movie. And it's a great movie. It's a great, great movie. Yes. But we had we had to figure out what, you know, what was the cause of death. So um, my kids, I think all of us have those uh, sayings that our parents said. Some of us are in therapy over those sayings <laughs> that our parents said over and over again, kind of their mantras. Yeah. And my kids will, I've seen them like mock me when I start to say it, I can see them mouthing the words in the backseat mm. when they were little. And one of the mantras that I always said was mistakes make us smarter because both of my kids, Judah firstborn, I know some firstborns like I am are pleasers. So she would, she was afraid to make mistakes because she was afraid that it wouldn't please us. And our son is just, he just, there's a way to do it and it's right. And if it's not right, you know, his art teacher would say he rips up his papers if he doesn't, if it's not perfect, you know, it's like the Michelangelo. And so, um, I would, we started this thing, mistakes make us smarter, mistakes make us smarter. But the truth is that's, I, I don't tell my kids this because then they'll mock me even greater now that they're teenagers. The yeah, exactly. It's fine. Um, is that mistakes make us smarter if we let them, if we, hmm. if we, if we lean into the lesson, um, the mistake in itself is not going to make us smarter. Um, no, it, it sucks at the time. Uh, totally. Absolutely. But how great that we can, um, that we can learn from those things. And, and I think that this story is a really great, uh, way to look at that. Cause again, they did make some huge missteps. Yes. They were genius, genius gentlemen. They are. Um, but, yeah. uh, but they were genius cause they learned from their mistakes as well. Were there any other insights you gleaned from the story? You know, Mark, I think this is one of the few that we get to unpack the idea of partnership. You know, these, these were, these were kids. First of all, I don't know a whole lot of, uh, eighth graders and 10th graders that would be mature enough to not only go into business together, but still be friends, um, mm. all these years later, but talk to me about partnership. I mean, this is a kind of a new mm. thing, um, in, in this episode, in this season of inspiring growth, but where does partnership fit in? Do you, is it always a positive thing? Is it ever negative? What do you think? Good question. I, I think they demonstrated that a friendship can become a partnership that can last a lifetime. Mm. And I think that's hopeful. I mean, but I'm part of it, and I think you have to go deeper into the memoirs, you know, Paul Allen and his, 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 his uh, book, but it, it showed that they, they focused on their strengths and they let the other one work in their strengths. And I think that's the place where a partnership, whether it's friend or not, um, can thrive. Um, I, you know, I, I love that you've joined the podcast and you have brought a new energy and letting you be, you helps me be me and I don't have to carry it all. And that is one of those things. But at the same time, you know, I, I, one of my closest friends, I hired him. He joined my team and organization I was leading. It didn't work out for him in the business, uh, but we're still friends. Mm-hmm. Our friendship, we chose our friendship over the, over the business, um, but it almost, it almost tanked us. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so one of the things that struck me 
Um, I was an educator for lots of years, uh, as you know, Mark, and uh, I was inspired that the faculty of the private school that these two boys attended mm. uh, pooled their money together, which was a giant amount at the time, pooled their money together so that the school could have a computer. Yeah. And had those boys not had that unlimited access to tinkering and dissecting and understanding the use of the computer, uh, we're not, you know, Microsoft may never have been a thing, but I was so inspired to continue to be the person who, it may not be my flame that gets fueled directly, but uh, that I have a responsibility to fuel the flame of others, um, which I thought was really cool. I loved that. Let's high five the teachers in our lives that have made a difference like that. I, I think of Mrs. Conger in high school when I walked into her office and said, I just walked into the bathroom. It's TP. There's defecation on the walls. I didn't use that word. And it's horrible. And she said, here's the camera. Go take a picture and write a story for the newspaper. And I was like, I look back and go, that's a, that was a moment. A teacher said, did something that really just empowered me to do something about something. And, you know, let's give high fives to those teachers in our lives. Absolutely. I had one in high school, um, and he used to put us, we had tables, two people at a table. He would partner us with somebody who did not agree with us politically. <laughs> so he would bring something up. He would stir the pot and then he would say, hey, Chris Parrott, what do you think? And he would say, well, I think that burr, burr, burr. And then he'd say, Amberly, what do you think? And I'd say, I think it would be. And it was, it was this glorious, it was like mm. mud wrestling, uh, political mud wrestling. And it was, it was glorious. It it taught us to think through things, to be able to articulate our, our ideas. And mm -hmm. I can't even remember his name at this point. It's been a, yeah. it's been a minute uh, since I was in high school, but I certainly remember uh, that uh, the ability that he had to kind of spur our thinking and make us mm -hmm. better. And I'm so thankful for that. Well, Emily, thank you so much for pulling this story together. Also, I want to encourage you, if this idea of failure is interesting to you, there is a Gimlet podcast I really enjoy called Without Fail. You might want to check that out as well. It tells stories of people who have failed and come out on the other side with um, some real growth. And uh, it's, one, it's one of those podcasts I really enjoy. And a second podcast I want to shout out is our youngest son, Brennan. He's doing a podcast called Life of the American College Kid. And he is walking through his college career, sharing stories with his roommate and interviewing others. That also is on Apple iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. Is he a millennial? Well, he's 19. What does that make him? Oh, I think he's a, I think he's a Gen Z. I was going to say, is yeah. it called the millennial, millennial Falcon? But no, it's, Boom. it's, it's, <laughs> all right. I love that. That's super yeah. fun. Okay. Yeah. And what is that one called again? I'm sorry. I wasn't. Life I of the American College Kid. Life of the American College Kid. I love that. Yeah. So uh, a couple of recommendations. Hey, I want to thank Dylan Garvin with Studio D Productions for pulling together and editing this podcast. Folks, if you're thinking of doing a podcast, Anchor is a great place to house it. And Dylan is an amazing editor. Give them a, a check out and a shout out. Also, just want to remind us all as we move back into a new way of living post-COVID with cautiousness, let's not stifle our growth in our relationship with one another. Let's not be afraid of one another. Remember, growth and connection happens best when we are fully present, when we are kind to one another, and when we ask good questions. I'm Mark P. Fisher, your chief encourager, with co-host Amberly Lee. Woohoo!
Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. If you jump on iTunes and give us five stars and reviews and ratings, we are seeing more and more of those. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week for Inspiring Growth.